Shadow Talk. Hello and welcome to Shadow Talk, brought to you by the Digital Shadows Analyst Team. This week, the 90s are back with talk of DDoS attacks and Twin Peak volumes dominating the news. We'll update you on the latest Memcache reflection attacks. Also, a fake news campaign in the Middle East targeting Persian speakers. Sorry, no pun there. I ran out of ideas. We've got news on a POC exploit code released for a variant of the Spectre vulnerability. And bear in the Bundestag as we learn more about the alleged Russian compromise of the German government. All this to come on this week's Shadow Talk. Welcome again for another edition of Shadow Talk. Joining me this week, we have Simon Tame. Good Simon, day. Simon, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Raf. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Good week here. And we've got Harrison live from Dallas. Harrison, welcome. Hey, Raf. How's it going? Very good. Thanks. All right, let's kick things off. Simon, last week you gave us a rundown of the latest denial of service attack using Memcached servers. And there have been further developments this week. What do you have for me? Memcached. Well, Raf, here I am for a second week talking about Memcached. I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but that's exactly what we've had this week. So there was an attack affecting a customer of an internet service provider in the United States. We don't know who that is. Um, and that reached a peak traffic volume of 1.7 terabits per second. So that's really high in comparison to what we've seen before. Obviously, there was the attack against GitHub that I mentioned, um, and that was 1.35 terabits per second. So you can see the sort of potential attack volumes that attackers can reach with these um, with these sort of susceptible memcache servers. So the internet-facing servers that are open on ports 11211 um, without any traffic filtering enabled. So at the moment, we don't know who conducted the attack against this um, ISP customer or why it was conducted. Um, but what we do know is there wasn't any significant degradation of service um, suffered by the affected entity. So I'm assuming that the sort of appropriate DDoS mitigation was put in place. More recently, we've had um, some other organizations as well. There was reporting today that Google, Amazon, as well as the National Rifle Association in the United States, uh, some video gaming companies and some cybersecurity companies too that have all been affected by these attacks. And it's not just actual DDoS attacks happening as well. We've also seen some extortion attempts coming out of this as well. Yeah, so at the end of last week, some sneaky so-and-so was putting ransom notes within the bad packets that were affecting the um, victims of memcached attacks. So within packet captures, they were put, well, not within the packet captures themselves, but within the traffic, they were putting messages saying, pay 16,000 US dollars worth of Monero into this address. Um, Monero being their cryptocurrency of choice, it seems. There's a couple of interesting things to note about this, really. And the first one is that the exact same attempts were detected across multiple companies in multiple industries. So my hunch is this is kind of a rough attempt at piggybacking on the prevalence of the memcached reflection methods. The other thing that's worth noting is that burying ransom notes in the packets is quite a funny tactic. It's quite unusual. So it would really require someone to go in and look at the packet captures to actually see that. So it's really reducing the potential audience of a ransom note. Um, and it's quite specific. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that we've got DDoS and extortion activity uh, hand in hand. It's something that we've seen before, right? Yeah, it's pretty old school. It's quite a playground tactic. Um, but I guess these things stick around because they're seen as viable, right? So I suppose that's something interesting to take away from it. In the past, you've had big names, you know, DD4BC, the Armada Collective, but there's other lesser known groups like Stealth Ravens, XMR Squad, Phantom Squad. 
So you can see I spent a lot of time researching these guys, but I'm probably not even scratching the surface here. These are ones that have just been publicly reported. Um, so yeah, the point is it's a common tactic and it's been around for some time. The difference between the, the Memcached extortion staff um, and the groups that I just mentioned is that typically uh, the groups send emails to the companies that they're targeting. Um, even the ones that are sort of adopting copycat um, methods, so using the Armada Collective name but not actually following through with any attacks, they would use email addresses. And I guess the only advantage of not doing so is it reduces your digital footprint. So there's less sort of uh, investigation leads, I guess. I guess extortionists are really trying to memcash in on the hype right now. <laughs> Indeed. And what can we expect in the future? Is this a story that's going to continue running for the next few weeks? I think there's two sides to this, really. So there's the increasing adoption of memcash reflection on the one hand, and then there's the efforts of uh, folk in computer emergency response teams, but also individual members of the security community as well, who are doing great work to reduce the number of susceptible servers. Now, statistics from services such as Shodan show that the number is actually decreasing. So my thoughts are uh, we'll continue to see a high frequency of attacks taking place, um, at least in the near future, so up to a couple of months. And this is going to be exacerbated by people incorporating the technique into DDoS for hire services, but also the availability of tools helping you to conduct these attacks as well, which we've already seen at least one of posted to GitHub. In the longer term, I think um, the awareness around this issue, the efforts from the security community, from the certs um, and everyone trying to remediate might have a positive impact on the number. Um, we could see less servers available overall, but really I don't know if this issue is going to go away entirely. I know you told us last week, but be there for us and remind our listeners what they should be doing to mitigate against this type of threat. So the main thing is if you don't need your server to be internet facing, if it's running memcached, change it. Um, if you do, consider whether you need UDP port on one, two, or one open, and if you don't, disable that. If you need all of the above, uh, use firewalls or access control lists to filter and block the unwanted traffic to it. And also, DS customers will be alerted to internet-facing servers with one, one, two, one, one open, so you can find that out for yourselves. A couple of things as well. Memcast released a new version um, which disables UDP port by default. So one of the issues was that when people spun up these servers, it would be open on 11211 and that was part of the problem. But I think it requires manual installation, so I'm not sure how widely that's going to be adopted. Uh, there is a CVE number for this, which is interesting, and that was, um, that was on the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the United States. And they've included this vulnerability as CVE 2018 1000115. Um, but it's interesting because it's not really a software vulnerability, it's just a configuration. Um, but I guess it helps organizations track it. Great, a lot of useful advice there. Thank you for that, Simon. Now, our second story of the week concerns disinformation in the Middle East, specifically a campaign intended to influence Persian or Farsi speakers and discredit Western media outlets. Harrison, is this a case of fake news or not fake news? That's my real question here. Yeah, thanks, Raf. Um, so, so yeah, so let me just start with a little bit of background. So, uh, this disinformation campaign had two really main spoof targets. Um, one was for the Persian BBC, and another was for Radio Farda, which is a branch of the U.S.-sponsored Radio Free Europe. Both are very popular news sources uh, for for Persian speakers, and specifically those in Iran. Uh, but to answer your question of whether or not these would be considered fake news, I would say it kind of depends on which site you're talking about. 
uh, both sites are using brand imagery from Persian BBC and also Radio Radio Farda. So there's obviously a brand misuse issue for sure. The information being spread on Persian BBC on the Persian BBC spoof site actually slanders the BBC and the UK kind of as a whole country. So, and it does also appear to be spreading actual fake news stories. Uh, however, the Radio Farda spoof actually uses original content that kind of counters and reacts to news topics that are posted on Radio Farda. So when you really look at it, there's you know a couple of different things going on, and it really depends on which site you're talking about. But I think the ideas of disinformation, propaganda, and you know kind of general confusion are the main goals of this campaign. So at the end of 2016, Digital Shadows produced a white paper looking at how easy it is to conduct this information campaign. And in it, we showed how there were basically a ton of tools available online at cheap prices and that most campaigns split into three distinct stages. Harrison, how does this campaign match up with that previous sort of research we've done and all the different disinformation campaigns we've seen in the past? So looking at the taxonomy that was in our paper that you mentioned, uh, from what we know, there are only a couple of different tactics that really, in this instance, that really line up with what we classify as a traditional disinformation campaign. Uh, these being the use of site impersonation and domain spoofing, and also using social media to spread uh, that content. These fall under the categories that we describe in the paper as creation and publication. One of the ways that these sites were being circulated, which is the third category that we outline, was that, that these spoof sites were actually showing up pretty high on search result lists on popular search engines like Google or, or Yandex, uh, and sometimes actually outranking some of the legitimate sites on, on some other uh, search engines. So what we don't know is how this was really being accomplished. Um, you know, before we've seen things like search engine optimization techniques uh, being used to basically manipulate search engine results. Um, and, you know, this, that's possible here, but again, we just really don't know really what, what happened exactly in this instance. Great. Yeah, so just to reiterate for some people who may have not seen the paper. So as Harrison said, the, the three distinct stages would be first, we've got the creation phase where you could use spoof domains or website impersonators to create a spoof site and a, and a mock-up of a, a legitimate news service. Then you've got the publication stage, whether it's on social media or the site itself. And then you've got the circulation phase where you basically amplify how many people you reach. And that's usually done by retweets or fake review services online. So the interesting thing for me is it's not just a political issue. And I mean, it's probably interesting for our listeners as well. So with disinformation campaigns in general, you know, you could have a lot of use cases for that. So influencing the share prices of a company down to affecting the reputation of an organization. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways that it could be used and a lot of ways to propagate false information for your own gain. Yeah, I think you're right. I think businesses should definitely pay attention to this kind of threat. I mean, for these specific instances, you know, if you're a media company who produces content on a daily basis, there's two specific kind of kind of risks or dangers that I see. One being the obvious case of like brand misuse and um, using company assets on non-company sites. That's kind of an obvious one that has occurred here. And the other being that these sites could potentially be pulling away legitimate users from from your legitimate site. So you know, that's obviously something that you don't want to have happen. 
uh, you want people to be driven towards your content as opposed to taken away from it. And Harrison, what sort of countermeasures should businesses and individuals take to combat the spread of disinformation? Yeah, so we, we list out quite a few in the paper, um, but just pulling out a couple, you know, registering trademarks for your company where possible. These are, these are kind of needed in order to take down or submit takedown requests. Using password security to prevent against account takeover. Um, and then also reporting social media postings and accounts to prevent against the spread of this information, the circulation of it. For a full rundown, really, I, I really would highly recommend reading our white paper. Yeah, just to add on what you said about social media monitoring, I think there's some freely available things that you can use online. So like Google Alerts, for example, you can search for mentions of your brand or staff across forums. But you could even try and build your own scraper, I suppose, with open source tools. Or there are obviously companies out there who can do that for you. I also think it's probably a cultural and educational issue as well. I mean, there's just a general distrust of mainstream media at the minute. It's also a lack of awareness by some people of how to spot fake news and how to distinguish it from, from real sources or genuine or primary sources. And then also we've got obviously geopolitical and sociocultural and economic tensions as well, which, which fuel these type of campaigns. So there's a lot of larger, broader issues outside of technology going on here. So I think fake news is something that we're going to be probably battling with for a while. And it's, it probably falls on all of us to try and, to try and play our role in terms of combating it. Now, moving on, it's been a while since we mentioned the Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities, but there's been an update this week. Simon, are the four horsemen of the apocalypse on the horizon now then? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so it's really a, a brief update on this one. And the gist is that university researchers released a proof of concept exploit for what they are saying is a newly identified variation of the Spectre vulnerability. They've called it SGS Spectre. And essentially, the exploitation of it allows someone to read data that's normally protected by Intel's software guard extensions. So not much is actually known about it, but essentially it's abusing branch predictors in Intel processors. So these are the things that go out and try to make these processes more efficient by preempting where they need to go, to put it in real layman's terms. Uh, for me, the important parts with this one is we've not seen any exploitation in the wild. We don't know how reliably it can be exploited and we don't know what specific data can be viewed when it's exploited. So obviously the big thing with Spectre was, you know, it could reveal passwords potentially. Whether we'll see any more of it off the back of this research is a question I can't really answer for sure. I'd expect uh, for the impact of this discovery to be limited um, because there's too much unknown about it at the moment. I guess it's safe to say at the minute we don't need to be panicking too much. It's just uh, got a new POC exploit out there, but still a lot of unknowns. I'd say so, yeah. So a couple more incidents that we've reported on today, just to keep our listeners abreast of exactly what's going on. The first involves the Lazarus Group, who we talk about quite a lot here on the pod. So the Lazarus Group, which are a suspected North Korean nation state actor, they've been observed targeting Turkish financial institutions. So attacks against these institutions involve delivery of the Bankshot remote access trojan via spear phishing emails. And the other big story of the day involves the 2017 sea cleaner attack, where a third stage payload has been identified. So this third payload was identified as Shadowpad, which is a platform used by attackers to secure remote control capabilities on victim networks. And our final story of the week concerns new reporting on tactics and attribution regarding a compromise of the German government. Now, Simon, you found this particularly interesting. Why did you pester me into including this in this week's podcast? Pester? Ridiculous. 
Uh, so for context, this relates to an intrusion affecting the German Foreign Office, which started in March 2017, and it persisted until December 2017. And the attackers managed to infect at least 17 computers there, but they were doing some really interesting stuff with the command and control, which I wanted to talk about, which is why I got quite excited. So the story goes, they were using Microsoft Outlook for C2, command and control infrastructure, and the infected computers were being sent commands via email. Um, and Outlook was also being used for data exfiltration, and I believe they were able to obtain a, quote, limited number of documents. Obviously, the, the major issue with this is we're just relying on press sources. We have no sort of official insight into it. Now, I'm not sure if this was a case of email account hijacking, but if it was, then it's important to remember just how much valuable information can be flying through these accounts within an organization. So if you think about what you're passing back, back and forth between your colleagues, the sort of information and the documents you're sharing, um, externally, you might use you know, secure file transfer, but internally, if you're just passing someone a document, passing someone some information, it's quite a rich source. But also, there's the social engineering element as well. If you, know, you can hijack email chains or use it for business email compromise attempts, you know, there's quite a, quite a few factors to consider. So then I'm going off on a tangent here away from the intrusion, but I think the email account was a really interesting part. And actually, a lot of the APT groups that we see go after email accounts. If you look at APT28, who were in fact attributed to this intrusion originally, but that later changed to Turler Group. But APT28 use a lot of email account compromise as part of their intrusion attempts. So interesting stuff. Yes, I mean, not to butt in, but you do mention that, you know, APT28 was originally kind of thought to be or attributed to this attack, and then now it's switched over to Turla. Um, attribution seems to be a constant struggle, which is something that we've highlighted before many times. Yeah, good point, Harrison. I mean, we, we spent a lot of previous pods talking about difficulties of attribution, and I think this is just another case of uh, attribution shifting. All right, it's coming up towards the end of the podcast, so time for our weekly takeaways. Harrison, why don't we kick it off with you? Yeah, I think some of the mitigation techniques that I mentioned before um, are, are, are pretty good to start out with, but I think kind of the main takeaway that I would suggest would be to have a playbook kind of in place uh, in your, within your organization to who responds to certain things. So, for instance, if you had a domain spoof, which is kind of the big, um, the big issue with the disinformation campaign that I talked about, having a playbook for who actually responds to submitting submitting takedown requests and who processes those, who keeps up to date with them, and and kind of responsible for monitoring those things. Uh, that's that's a very good thing that I think companies should should be focusing on. And Simon, some last words from me. Yeah, so off the back of my comments about email accounts, realized I went on a bit of a rant there. Uh, Multi-factor authentication, it's a beautiful thing. Um, as I said, a lot of threat actors relying on compromised email accounts for their operations. So MFA, go for it if you can. For the memcache stuff, obviously, if you're running a memcache server, consider the steps that I've mentioned in this pod. And also, it's Mother's Day on Sunday. So happy mothering Sunday. Happy Mother's Day, Mum. Three takeaways for the price of one there. Thank you, Simon. Okay, that's the end of our show. Thank you very much for listening. And another reminder of our upcoming webinar featuring the pod's very own Harriet Gruen and a lead FBI investigator who will discuss ransomware threats in 2018. The webinar will be live on 15th of March. For more information and registration, visit the Digital Shadows website. Have a good week.